Now you know. When you come up in the elevator, it took you seven minutes. Well, this way down, you want to get down in a hurry, would take you 30 seconds. <laughs> well, of course, we uh, don't uh, recommend that. Hello, and welcome to the Trap One Podcast. This is Jason, guest hosting for Mark. Mark tells me that if I do this one more time, I'm going to have to change my name to Trap 2. I am uh, coming to you, as always, from Brooklyn, New York, and today we have the pleasure of having with us the two authors of the new book, Look at the Size of That Thing, from Pencil Tip Publishing, a serious, dramatic, sober examination of the Doctor Who phenomenon. As you can tell by the title, Doctor Who fiction books do not get much more earnest and consequential than this one. Actually, look at the size of that thing. Is that rare thing for a text written for, by, and about Doctor Who fans? It is an out-and-out comedy written by two very funny people. My first guest today needs no introduction. Dr. Stacy Smith, question mark. The question mark is part of her name. Stacy's been on the pod before, discussing her Black Archive book on Doctor Who and the Silurians. Stacy has authored, co-authored, and or edited literally dozens of books, both academic and genre, with a long string of Doctor Who and other sci-fi books to her credit, including the Time Unincorporated series from Mad Norwegian and the ever-growing, expanding, pulsating, throbbing line of outside-in books from ATB Publishing. She's lectured on mathematics and statistics and disease modeling in literally dozens of countries, makes her home in two different continents, often at the same time, and has had her life story narrated by Morgan Freeman. Seriously, that is not a joke. Look that up. On the show Through the Wormhole, it is incredible. Stacy's been my good friend for over 25 years, and I'm thrilled to have her back on the show with us. And the fact that she's published me in almost 10 of her books, and that I mentioned twice in Look at the Size of That Thing, has nothing to do with her appearance today. Nothing. Nothing at all. Hello, Stacy. Hello, thanks for having me. Uh, i got to say, I much prefer talking about comedy and Doctor Who than like the end of the world and disease like we did last time. You know, that brings up a good point, because the last time that you were on, I asked you to tell me that we're not all going to die of coronavirus, and I am somehow still here, halfway through my <laughs> vaccination cycle, so thank you. You're welcome. If my first guest needs no introduction, then my second guest really, really needs an introduction. Coming to us from the fighting state of Minnesota, U.S. of A., we have with us Mr. Bill Evenson, no question mark. Bill, our listeners have one burning question. Who are you? Uh, I'm, that's, that's the question we're going to try to answer here on this podcast. I think there's, that's really the key to it. Can I leave now? <laughs> <laughs> You're not getting I out of this am, that easily. I am in less uh, Stacy Smith books than you are from the sound of it, but, you know... Uh, I'm a friend of Stacy's, and I haven't known Stacy as many years as you have. Uh, but <laughs> uh, I'm in I'm in a, f- a fair number of those outside in books, and I'm the co-host of the Frankenstein Minute podcast. For what that's worth to Doctor Who fans, uh, and is it about the I'm, Brain of Morbius? That's the one. We should totally do a Brain of Morbius special. <laughs> um. Uh, and I'm the co-author of the aforementioned book. <laughs> What's it called? Look at the size <laughs> of that thing. 
That was my biggest complaint, because once this book came out, there's now going to be more Bill books on my bookshelf than Jason books, and that is a serious problem at home. So now I've got some catching up to do. Exactly. Yeah, no, I I, I was going to ask you to co-author a book with me, but then we'd just be, I'd always be ahead. That's true. That means I'm going to have to bamboozle Stacy into co-authoring a book with me, preferably <laughs> on uh, disease modeling, although I'm not a statistician. That's going to be a rather unimpressive book. But let's, let's do a combination of comedy and disease modeling and law. That would be tremendously right. unfunny for so many reasons. <laughs> so, Bill, if you're doing the Frankenstein Minute podcast, have you done a special episode on the crossover between 1931 Frankenstein and the 1996 Doctor Who TV movie? You know, uh, okay, so the, the, the concept of the podcast is we talk about those movies minute by minute. So when I got to the minute... Uh, that is in that 1996 TV movie. Yeah, of course I went off on it. And uh, my my co-host, he edits the podcast, so uh, he's he got really sick of hearing me talk about Doctor Who by the time we got to that minute. <laughs> Must have been the longest minute in the history of Frankenstein. <laughs> Something like that. So in all seriousness, Bill is one of the funniest people I know. When it comes to Minnesota and funny, three names come to mind. Senator Al Franken former radio comic Garrison Keillor, and Bill. Unfortunately, Al Franken was run out of the U.S. Senate on spurious charges of sexual misconduct, and Garrison Keillor lost his radio empire for presumably less spurious charges. Al Franken, before getting elected to the upper house, was famous as a sketch comic, and so was Bill from his fine work on the Reality Bomb podcast. But I am no sketch comedy writer, so we are not here to play continuity cops today. My apologies. I thought for sure you were going to talk about me being run out of my podcast. Like, this is how I was going to hear about it. (laughs) Speaking of which, we'll talk about that afterwards. See me after the recording ends, Bill. Look, I was just being friendly. I thought you were cool with it. (sighs) Unfortunately, what I am not cool at is vocalizing, so where Prairie Home Companion always featured renditions of chart-topping 1930s hits and 1940s hits in the year 2015... I suppose it's too much to ask Bill and Stacy to team up on a rendition of You're the Cream in My Coffee. But guys, how about a rendition of I Am the Doctor on the count of three? <laughs> one. Can we do Banana Company theme tune instead? <laughs> I can do the Banana Splits theme song. That one I know. <laughs> All right. Uh, now I got to pick a theme do, song. Do, 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 do. I'll do the canine. <laughs> There you go. We can I'll make just do the one. Doctor Who theme song. Just sit back and put press play on the, on the on the computer. I would do the canine theme song, but I'd be afraid that Ian Levine would sue me. We'll be back after this brief musical message. <laughs> And we're back with Stacy and Bill to discuss look at the size of that thing from Pencil Tip Publishing. And I want to start off, guys, with a question about my favorite part of the entire book, which is page 13, the acknowledgments. And you guys write, apologies to Jason Miller, that's me, 
for being unable to use the original title he suggested, which was brilliant but far too risque, even for this book. Now, my first thought upon reading this is, woohoo, my name! My second thought is, I can't even remember what joke title I suggested. I assume it was at 2.30 in the morning at the karaoke room at Gallifrey One about three or four years ago. Uh, guys, what did I suggest, and why can't you use it? Uh, by the way, your memory is pretty accurate. I think it was 2.30 in the morning at the Gallifrey karaoke room. Maybe Bill was singing at the time. Uh, the, the, the title was Take a Man Around the Rear. Because I asked you, I said, what's, what's the most lascivious Doctor Who line that we can use as the title for a book? And you said, Take a Man Around the Rear. And I was like, oh my God, I love it. Uh, so we actually ran into a serious problem though with the title because it's too long. Um, and at one point we were going to call it Look at the Size of That Thing Doctor. But the, like, they were like, yeah, titles have to be really short because they have to go in big font and all sorts of things. So actually, the, the real reason we couldn't use it well partly because because one of the editors along the way objected but also it's just too long and so yeah so look at the size of that title oh doctor uh, what about i can play all day in my green cathedral is that shorter <laughs> i think that should be the subtitle really <laughs> so how did you come up with the name look at the size of that thing was that the two of you all at once and we took one look at each other and you knew or was it a negotiation don't even remember. Maybe I, maybe I was transfixed by Bill's crotch at the time. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it. Stacy says it to me kind of a lot, and it's a little embarrassing. But yeah, I think that might have been it. <laughs> <laughs> I was so thrilled to have my name in the book, even though I had no part in the writing of it. That the first thing that I did was uh, show my wife because you know, hey, look, I've got my name in a book. Unfortunately, you put Dave Barsky's name right above mine. And in my wife's line of work, Dave Barsky is Stephen Moffat and uh, Babe Ruth and President Joe Biden all rolled into one. And once she saw Barsky's name, she didn't even remember me. She's like, who are you again? So, yeah, thanks for ruining that for me. Thanks a lot. And yeah, there's, no, there's no competing with Barsky, so, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> no, I learned that many years ago. When she saw that I was Facebook friends with him, that was kind of it for me. Yeah. So how did you guys meet? Oh, we, we met in the we, lobby. We we were rivals, actually. <laughs> we were. Right, yeah. 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 Okay. So here it is. The dirty. The dirty secret. We we were we were both interested in the, this like same really awesome feminist that we'd met, um, and then. And basically, like, I don't know, I was like, I remember after the convention, I Graham was like, oh, yeah, that Bill guy was awesome. Like, don't even speak to me about that guy. Like, oh, my God, that guy. <laughs> was oh, that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think I had met him because I remember meeting Graham at uh, Chicago TARDIS. So I might have met him a few weeks before I met you then. But, yeah, it was that. Yeah. But then mm. it was it was that same weekend we ended up. Uh, oh, yes. It must have been a few days later. Anybody who's been to Gallifrey and drinks as much as I do, will know that the, the big party that takes place on uh, the first floor, when things uh, finish up, they kind of hand you, they hand a box of booze, usually to me, when the evening ends and you've got to go off somewhere. And, yeah, Bill, uh, Bill yeah. is basically the mayor of LobbyCon. <laughs> unofficial, unofficial. <laughs> I don't wear the sash anymore. It's, yeah. uh, it's really gone downhill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll look no. at the size of that road of Rassilon. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes, I think I, I seem to remember coming back to somebody else's hotel room with a big uh, box full of booze and setting it aside and sitting around talking about disease modeling until the uh, late hours of the night. That's yes, my memory yeah. of it. 
Yeah, I think yeah, we we ended up, I think we were the we were the two holdouts in the lobby at one point. And like, you know, about six AM everyone has gone to bed and we're still chatting away. <laughs> I was like, I guess these guys are right. Okay, I suppose. <laughs> My mistake was going to Galley for the first time when I had a two year old at home, so I had a congenital inability to stay up past eleven thirty at night. So I was the one guy at Galley who would duck out respectfully early and set my alarm for 8 in the morning to get an early start the next day. It took me a couple of years to actually get the real Galley experience once I saw the far side of midnight. <laughs> I didn't even know they had 8 a.m. programming. <laughs> Very surprisingly a few people show up. I think Stacy usually asked to not be on anything before noon. I went to one Chicago TARDIS where I was on one panel, and it was the outside-in panel, and that was the only panel I went to, and I think it was at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So that was perfect for me. I know I saw Stacy at 9 in the morning at Galley when she was doing the commentary for Mummies on the Orient Express. I think, Stacy, you did that on five minutes notice with no research? I, I did, I did. Graham, Graham was supposed to do it, and he was, he was deathly ill that weekend, and he came back to the hotel room we were sharing. I was fast asleep, and he's like, wake up, wake up, wake up, you've got to go on, you've got to go on, I can't do it, you're on stage. And I was like, well, I'm awake now. <laughs> Sorry, what am I doing? Who am I talking to? <laughs> and thank goodness I'd watched Mummy on the Orient Express like only a few days earlier. And I was like, okay, okay, I can do this. And yeah, so that was, that was a great galley experience. Well, I was going to say, how did that turn out? Because uh, I think that's the best way to do it. Like I had a, I had, was supposed to do a commentary with Colin Baker at a convention, and one minute before we're supposed to go on, they said we can't figure out how to get the DVD player to work. So you're just going to have to do an interview with Colin Baker, and it was the greatest time I've had. I had to make it up as I went. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I have an improv background anyway, so, you know, I, I love that stuff. I love working under pressure, and I'm used to, I mean, I teach for a living, so I'm used to being in front of hundreds of people, like, you know, every day on, like, no sleep and whatever, and so it's, it's fine, yeah. Yeah, but I agree. I think I think this book, too, right? It's like, you know, you're kind of drawing all that kind of, like, just comedy that you're doing just on the fly. Um, so, you know, I mean, I guess my hope for the book is a bit like it's, you know, it feels like, you know, you're sitting listening to the two of us, like, in the lobby of a convention just making fun of Doctor Who, out of a place of love, which is exactly where we come from. I'm more hung up on this Colin Baker thing. Bill, if you had to interview Colin Baker on no notice, at the end, did he say to you that was much more coherent than Trial of a Time Lord? <laughs> Actually, he said, he said, uh, that was great. You know why? Because you're smart. Or in his, uh, more like, you're smart. And I remember telling my friend Greg Bakken about that, that, he, that I was so, like, chuffed that he had said this to me. And Greg's like, yeah, he said that to me, too. He says it to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Colin Baker told me he loved me because we were waiting to go on stage. And I, I had a bunch of Oreos. And I came and said, oh, does anyone want any Oreos? He says, oh, I love you. And I think maybe he loved the Oreos slightly more. But nevertheless, he said it to me. <laughs> you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't take that back. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> After he reads the chapter about Colin Baker in this book, he might change his mind. So bring extra Oreos next time. Well, that's a disclaimer I want to make sure we get out there. Nobody tell Colin about this book. But everybody else, read it. Just don't tell Colin. I mean, to be fair, we do sometimes go for the obvious jokes. Not all the time, but sometimes we do. And, you know, there's some jokes to be made in the Colin Baker era. We certainly went for all of them. So. <laughs> there is a lot of low-hanging fruit, such as the lack of preparation for a trial of a Time Lord. 
would have been better if they had gone into the studio for episode 14 with no script and just ad-libbed it, kind of like I'm doing right now. It would have been a much more coherent experience. So you're, it's your, okay, so you, it's your position that they didn't do that. If they had ad-libbed it with no script, it would have been a much more coherent ending, because then nobody would have said megabyte modem. We know there was a script. It was in a taxi. <laughs> that's, that's right. So the genesis of look at the size of that thing, I assume, arose out of your late-night conversations at Gallifrey, riffing on Doctor Who, and you said, hey, this is going to be a great book. Let's start recording ourselves. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I think I'd, I'd always wanted to write a comedy book, and, and my, my natural home is comedy, um, and I ended up doing, you know, more serious things because there's more market for that, I guess. And, you know, like, I, I mean, I wrote the Salyrian's Black Archive, and it's all about the end of the world and, you know, the destruction of society. And I'm like, yeah, sure, but, like, you know, I, I'm really just here to make jokes. Actually, they cut all my jokes from that one, and they were like, oh, yeah, you know, this is a serious academic work. I'm like... I feel like the jokes are why I'm here. I love, I love making the jokes and, and, you know, and all my writing with Graham Burke, like I'm, you know, always destroying your jokes and stuff like that. And, you know, so I'm like, yeah, let's do a full book on that. And I was like, I was like, I need, I need someone to write this with. Cause I like, you know, there's nothing more dreary than trying to like, just, you know, make jokes without a co-author. So I was like, who do I know who's funny? And I kind of went, no, that Bill guy was mildly amusing. I'll ask him. Uh, yeah, you, know. you couldn't think of anybody. So you called me. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, happened, <laughs> we, we were at a, we're a sushi you. restaurant in, New York, I think, were we? Is that true? Yeah, I there mean, was, well, I bet to a sushi restaurant yeah. in New York. Yeah, you? yeah, yeah, that's right. That was, that was, I think, the only one, yes. I would and, ask. And, I, and and what happened? And <laughs> Sorry, I, mean, I, I don't remember. You That was how it, when it came up? Oh, maybe it was. Yeah, yeah well, that was when was I it was one of those times that Graham kept insisting I needed to write a book about the hats of Doctor Who? Yeah, I think it Pumped was. that yes. up multiple times, <laughs> yeah. How were you guys at a sushi restaurant in New York and I wasn't invited? That's that's the bigger question. (laughs) Yeah, what's the story there? Was it it uh, an L.I. Who thing? Yeah, it was one of those way station events that we've gone to. I think think Graham and I had driven down. um, Well, I say we, because he doesn't drive, so I've done all the driving. We'd driven down from Canada and and done a book launch or something, and you'd you'd flown in because you had had easy flights from working at Dalter, I think, and... Okay, yeah, I do remember that one. Yeah, that was kind of a last-minute uh, thought. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it was It was nice to have those flights. Yeah. That was not the same way station event where Stephen Moffat showed up unannounced for the uh, Series 8 finale? It was not, no. <laughs> Which I was totally going to go to and got lazy and didn't go and then realized that I'd missed Stephen Moffat the night that they unveiled John Hurt as the Doctor. Still kicking myself. And now Way Station is closed because of the pandemic, so that will never happen again. That's got to hurt. Stephen Moffat might be a, a pretty good writer, but uh, I got tongue-tied when I, when I saw him at a convention. I said something like, are you famous everywhere you go or just at things like this? And he was like, yeah, just at things like this. And I realized <laughs> it, it came off as an insult, but it was supposed yeah. to be the opposite. You know? <laughs> I get him to sign my... Uh, uh, what is it? The, uh, one of the Benny books where he wrote the short story, and I was like, you know, if you keep working on things like this, you could really make something of yourself someday. <laughs> you both of you guys have insulted Stephen Moffat to his face. I, f- I feel left out now. <laughs> that's right. We, we can retire happy. <laughs> we also insulted him in print. Let's not forget. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's yeah. true. <laughs> Does he erase you from Doctor Who after you insult him in person? <laughs> Does he have that? Does he have the eraser? Does he just... Does he have that power? Rub you about? Right? Does he have the right? <laughs> oh, good Lord. 
So uh, Bill just held the book up on video, and I gotta ask, because any book starts with a cover, this is probably the most remarkable cover of a book that I've ever seen. It's got Bill clutching a sonic screwdriver in a comically oversized right hand while wearing the season 18 Tom Baker scarf and wearing the infamous Tom Baker underpants, which begs a whole series of questions, but I'll start off. How do you guys decide which of the two of you is going to wear the Tom Baker underpants as the cover model? Okay, well, the answer's really easy because we'd actually written this, the bulk of the book we'd written some years before, and so when it finally kind of like it, it shopped around a bit to different publishers and so on, when it was finally coming out, I transitioned just before, and then I realized, like, oh, thank God, because all the cover jokes are going to be about Bill now. <laughs> I don't look like that fan anymore. <laughs> what a great idea. Okay, so now I can detransition because it's, you know, my work here is done. <laughs> is there a photo shoot, Stacy, of you in the Tom Baker underpants that's on the cutting room floor that we can use in a special edition, or uh, did that not just not exist? No one will ever find that except for maybe Phil Morris one day in Nigeria. So my, my original plan for the cover was, was just the underpants. And actually, the, the inside cover just has them. And I thought, what a brilliant idea. We'll just put the underpants. And, and one, of, one of the people originally was looking at it. He's like, that's a terrible idea. You don't have that underpants on the thing. And I was like, it's funny. Come on. I was like, this is our one chance to really just ham it up and have, like, you know, like innuendo in the title and, like, underpants on the cover and so on. But actually, I couldn't believe what they came up with. Is It's beautiful. And it's it's it's, it's, way, it's got way more life to it than, than, you know, anything I think I would have done. I'm not, I'm not that visual a person. Um, I even love on the back they put a portal loop. I mean, for those who don't know, like there's all these restrictions about what you can and can't put on on covers of books. Like, so you can you can talk about lots of things as commentary, um, and that's covered under fair use, but you can't like inappropriate art and so on. So Doctor Who books have a long history of trying to like you know get around this. But I'm like, oh my god, the portaloo on the back is brilliant. I was like, why has this not been done before? I'm so happy. And there's even little tiny underpants kicking out of the portaloo. So yeah, th that's amazing. Actually, I think I probably would have put the portaloo on the cover if it had been just a neat. Out to uh, Robert Hammond for that one. Yes, that yes, it was genius. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's funny, Jason, because you said you know every book starts with the cover, and that's true for every reader. But for every writer, the cover is almost the last thing you do. And so it was very late in the day when we even saw this, and yeah, I, I was I was amazed by it. I mean, I had in my head a whole scenario as to how this cover came to be, and I came down to the two of you guys sitting there at Galley at four in the morning, playing rock paper scissors to decide who got to be the cover model but you kept playing to a draw every single time because you're secretly Movelins. Do I have it right? You got it. There you go. <laughs> we, we are mathematically precise. I, I mean, actually, I, I'm not really a font person, but I was like, oh, wait, I think there might be a Doctor Who font on the cover. And then, like, at the Minneapolis Tavern, they're like, yeah, like, it's multiple Doctor Who fonts. I was like, oh, yeah, right. I didn't even notice the Sylvester McCoy font for our names. <laughs> so I only noticed the neon logo. Ah. But, Oh, yeah, the neon logo was the first thing that I saw because, uh, you know, you got to have a tube on the cover, but I totally missed out on the uh, Sylvester McCoy. You're right. Well, there's, yeah. there's four different fonts. Look yes. at that is a Doctor Who font. Size of that is a different Doctor Who font. Thing is a different. So there's, yeah, four different ones. All right, let well, me no, guess. Five, because it's Afterward by Fraser Hines is another one. All right, so look at the has got to be the uh, John Pertwee font. That's the John Pertwee one, yeah. And the size of that is in vaguely serif, so that's got to be Patrick Trout in seasons five and six, right? I, th I thought it was the Tom Baker one. Oh, uh, yes, uh, starting with yeah. Mask of Mandragora. Yeah. So what font is the Afterward by Fraser Hines? <laughs> that, that is a we were ready to print and we forgot to put the Fraser Hines thing on the cover. <laughs> like, so let's shove it in at the last second. God knows where it's going to fit kind of font. 
Wait till, wait till Fraser finds out he's in this book. That's gonna. I can't wait to hear from him. No, but I think that looks like a vaguely Troughton-esque. Oh, now I've used the word Troughton-esque. That's actually in the book. That's a thing you're not supposed to do. It's, it's a font under siege. It's a font under siege. Exactly. I think once you use the word Troughton-esque, the podcast becomes serious, and I think we're not allowed to do that for this book, so I may have to erase the word Troughton-esque from the podcast the way that Stephen Moffat has erased you guys from Doctor Who fandom. <laughs> you know, I, I like, I, I'm, I'm liking this idea that Stephen Moffat is going to find a way to erase us from Doctor Who fandom, and I, uh, I, can, I personally, I can't wait to just know what that feels like. It'll be worth it. And let's face it, I mean, after this book, we've kind of given up on Doctor Who fandom. That's anyway. right. We're, we're going to be erased anyway. <laughs> you will have uh, burned a lot of bridges, I expect. Uh, it's all in good fun. Well, most of it's in good fun. Some of it's really mean, actually. <laughs> uh, so I had two questions that I think our listeners are dying to know, just in terms of the table of contents. Uh, number one is where did you get your ideas, and number two is why did you get your ideas? <laughs> okay, so, so I must say that the piece of the table of contents that is my favorite bit is is instead of page numbers, we say points for reading this far, and I'm like, I've had that joke floating around for so many decades, and I've been meaning to put it in the book, and I just haven't had the publisher who's been like, no, you can't do that, that'd be stupid, this is a black archive, you know, <laughs> yeah, and so finally I get to do like, oh, points for reading this far, this is awesome, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, so the, the the point of the uh, the points for reading this far is that you, you absolutely have to read this book in order, you can't, it's cheating, <laughs> To skip to a different section. Is that, would you say that's fair? That's very fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you want to read the monsters that look like penises chapter first, go right ahead. Oh, I do. I, I, yeah. I do like that one. <laughs> that's maybe my favorite one. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I, I think that's one of the strengths of the book. I'm making a joke that, that I don't know how it plays if you haven't read the book. But uh, I think you could read this book equally well at backwards. Just, well, maybe not word for word, yeah. but chapter for chapter. <laughs> We, sho- we shoveled them a lot, actually. Um, uh, I, th- I think the beta readers actually suggested, I think it was Joy Piedmont, who said, like, uh, you know, that, that chapter that you have in the middle, that should be the first one. And we were like, oh, neither of us thought of that. But, like, yeah, okay, sure, it is. And actually works as a nice little introduction. And so, you know, um, yeah, it, and they moved around an enormous amount. And I, I, I found it, because the thing is, like, we're writing comedy, right? We're not, we're not really writing to, like, game doll hand. We're just making a bunch of jokes. Um, but then, you know, feel like, well, what's your book about? We're like, it's about comedy. Like, it's making fun of Doctor Who. Like, you know, what do we need to, like, have an order of things? But it was like, I, I think I think kind of the, the idea kind of, it sort of came that we were like, oh, yeah, we're going to do this kind of survival guide to Doctor Who. Um, at one point, we, we might have called it the Hitchhiker's Guide to Doctor Who, you know, as, like, a placeholder. Not that we probably would have been allowed to use that, but, like, you know, whatever. But it was sort of like, eh, it's whatever. And then slowly, I think, actually took on form. And I realized at some point, it's like, you know, we kind of cover all the major beats, right? We cover the Doctors, we cover the Companions, we cover fandom, we cover, like, you know, like, behind the scenes. We cover we cover actually a huge amount. And it's not meant to be comprehensive in any way, but, like, a lot of it is there. I mean, there's so much there's so much to make fun of. <laughs> it was so gloriously ridiculous that, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, every, every single piece of it. I mean, I think my favorite... 
part of writing it was I, I wrote the um, the doctors aren't in chapter, um, which and and favorite bit of that was like the behind the scenes stuff, just talking about all the crazy personalities who were like making Doctor Who over the years. Like there's so much comedy gold in them, and you know, and they're all just they're so wacky every time. Like you know, you got the, like sheer rotating number of people in different roles in the Trouton era. Like every week, it's a different producer or script editor and all having a go. And I think Bill put in the bit about like you know, like you know, Idis Lloyd doesn't mean catering and Verity Lambert is mixing the music and you're just like, yeah, sure, why not? Like you know, stuff like that. And then you got just like totally different stuff when like you the hinge the fear and then like you know, you got Mary Whitehouse comes in and it's just like all kinds of stuff is happening and it's all comedy gold. You raised the point that the only person in the Trouton era who was actually running the show at all times was Trevor Red. He never even got his name in the closing credits. <laughs> That's right. Well, a lot of for Trevor sure you were going to say Mary Whitehouse, because uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure she was doing something. No, yeah, she, she, she became the, the producer after Philip Hinchcliffe, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> she was doing the editing in season uh, 14, yeah. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> And how did uh, Monsters That Look Like Penises not become the title of the book? Uh, although I guess that question answers itself. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> how did you guys wind up at Pencil Tip Publishing? Because I know you guys have had this book for a while, and I thought I saw a vestigial reference to Lars Pearson on page 97. You're a Viking editor. Yes. <laughs> we originally wanted it to be at Pencil Tip Publishing. That's right. That was our first choice. It's, it's like when they cast right. the doctor. Like, of course, Matt Smith was our first choice. This guy who had no career. Naturally, he was our first choice. He, we, he, he walked into the audition room and we looked at each other and we knew then and there that he was our doctor. <laughs> exactly, yes. I'll tell, I'll tell you what, though. When I mentioned pencil tip publishing to Dave Barsky, because uh, I've done some Zooms with him, uh, he was at, the, at a convention that we did over Zoom. Just to drop the Barsky name again to, to make Jason feel insecure so I can boost my myself a little bit. Um, uh, uh, he has a few of those pencil tip publishing books. They, they've done a number of uh, uh, genre books, right? Like, uh, I know the one that you liked was, was it called Tardis Troll? Or what was yeah, that Tardis Troll through the novelizations is excellent. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they just did a Sarah Jane Roving Reporter one. And, yeah. Yeah. And they've done some, what do the fans think of this or that, different yeah. Doctor Who, I think, was one of them. So, yeah. We yeah, just I, I mean, in my, in, my, in my academic day job, like, I always publish in lots of different journals. But people are like, how do you choose your journal? And I'm like, I want to publish in all of them. <laughs> like, it's like, I, I love having this diversity of, like, different things. Um, because I feel like you work with different people, you, you get different insights, you, you basically learn to be quite flexible and roll with the punches. And, and every publisher has their quirks. And, you know, and sometimes, you know, publishers I've worked with, you know, who can't even do footnotes. They're like, yeah, yeah, delete all the footnotes. We don't have... We don't know how to work the technology. And I'm like, oh, my God. And then you work for, you know, ATV Publishing, which is all, like, designed with the outside-in staff. And, and, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, see, you know, I want to do this as a, as a musical score. Yeah, no problem. You know, it's like, okay, we can just figure out how to make everything work there. And, um, and so, yeah, with Pencil Tip, it was just like, okay, yeah. I mean, it came on pretty late in the day, but they were like, we love this. It's hilarious, and let's do it. And so that enthusiasm was awesome. They made us change one word that I remember. Um, can we swear on this? Uh, okay. I think we already uh, have. Yeah, uh, probably. Uh, there's a section where I say Doctor Sodding Who, and I thought that was a really good uh, uh, replacement words, if you will, Stacey. I thought it kind of solved the problem that we were saying. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, but they swear I, a lot I, in the book. It was just they objected to that particular one, and I think they were right because, because I mean, you were doing a Christopher Eccleston mm-hmm. thing, um, and I actually think he's more likely to say sodding than the other word that we had. And, um, but yeah, and, and, that's, and it's funny because I think I think the F word is elsewhere in that sentence, or if not, I said it's adjacent to it. So it wasn't like they were like, please take out F words. It was like that particular one isn't just working right. And I was like, actually, this is really smart, and, and it's right. I mean, I mean, it was it was fun because they went through. I mean, this thing had actually been edited by various people. I mean, I, I think it's no secret that uh, one point imagine that we'd press was going to do it. Um, in fact, Lars Pearson did the interview with Fraser Hines and stuff like that. So Lars is a very very dear friend of mine, and you know, publishing just has all kinds of quirks and things come and go, and that's fine. And um, but yeah, you know, it it as a result, it'd been through so many different edits at this point, which was great for us because Lars particularly, he said like take out this, take out that, take out that. So the book becomes a lot less cruel as a result because he, he did this masterful edit on it. So by the time of Pencil Tip, they were like, oh, this is awesome. We really had fun reading it. There wasn't too many changes. And it's like, yeah, that's because it's already been through the process. And, and I, of course, you know, work as an editor anyway for ETB. So, you know, I'm like, like by that point, a lot, of, a lot of good eyes have been on it. There is this deliriously funny sequence when you're talking about Christopher Eccleston and the Doctors Aren't In where you talk about... Christopher Eccleston as the Ninth Doctor solving all these other Doctor Who scenarios in his own take no prisoner style, and I thought the F word featured pretty heavily in that sequence. <laughs> yes, I, it's actually I must say it's one of my favorite things that I've written. And well, you can edit this out if you don't want to include it. But my favorite bit is just imagining Eccleston in the Happiness Patrol, just being like, you know, go on, do it, pull the trigger. In my life, I said, do it, pull the fucking trigger, motherfucker. And you're just like, I can actually imagine that. <laughs> And that is on yeah. page 136 Almost. of Look at the Size of That Thing. And that might be the quote that gets this podcast pulled from the air for all time. <laughs> We've been erased from podcast land. <laughs> uh, let me ask that. What was the writing process? You mentioned the editing process, multiple editors having multiple goes. Uh, how did the two of you divide up the writing work? Who got to write which chapter? Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Bill, okay. your writing process. Um, I actually came up, initially I came up with an outline for the book and it's, it's, it's not even close to what we ended up with, but well, maybe in some ways it is. And I, so I had everything laid out by chapter. It's just like Stacy was talking about. You got to have one about the doctors. You got one about the episodes, one about the companions, whatever. And, uh, I was like, so what do we do? Cause I've never written a book. So I kind of lean on <laughs> Stacy for this kind of stuff. And I'm pretty sure it was Stacy that said, well, then we'll just no, it was a conversation we had on the phone, I think. We used to talk on the phone. I don't know if kids know what that is, but you used to talk on the telephone. And we did that back in the old days. And, uh, yeah, um, we actually split it up even and odd. And it turned out really fun because a lot of chapters, I remember a number of times there were chapters where it was like, well, this one should have gone to Stacy, uh, but it's un- it's even or whatever it was. So I ended up having to do it. I think it was the spinoffs one in particular. It was like, Stacy's already written a book about this, basically, or two. And it's like, no, it's my chapter, so I'm going to write it. And so you probably won't see those patterns anymore because of the chapters have been moved around. But I think yeah, I, 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 like that, I like that imposing an arbitrary thing on writing. I think it's, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's nice to have something to sort of battle against. Yeah, and it's and, funnier. And, we, yeah, and we, we write each other, too, right? And it's, you know... Like I give my stuff to Bill, and I'm like, you know, do do whatever you want with it, and and you 
sometimes it just throw in like a line here and a line there. I'm like, oh my god, that is the punchline. This was missing. Like this is awesome. Um, and and so you know that that's fantastic. And sometimes I'll just be like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, this needs this one word, and it's and it's good. And sometimes it was complete rewrites, and you know, that's, that's always the way the process goes when you got to. Like I said, you're putting sodding in, and that was yeah. just a couple of months ago. It yeah. <laughs> it changes that tenor of that. Now I'm getting too into the weeds. It's funnier with sodding. Let's put yeah. it that way. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> playing into the playing with the weeds gets us back to Harrison Chase and playing all day in the Green Cathedral. Unfortunately, I mean, we we didn't talk about Caesar Doom because we do talk about like the fifty crap stories of Doctor Who, which was very fun to do. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I've written guides with Graham where it's you know I've talked about the fifty best stories and I've done the Doctors are in and so on. So I just inverted my process. It was pretty easy. I think Bill. I think we actually went through and like had our list in a similar way, actually. Like, what, what 50 terrible stories are we going to talk about? And, and in my memory, it was very similar to my process with Graham, where we, we each came up with our list and independently and then kind of took the ones in common and then, and then argued about the others. There weren't that many others to argue about, if I remember yeah. right. Because if, if you're going to write about, I think, uh, you, you, you wrote this, so I can't remember exactly. It's something like um, uh, the 50 Doctor Who stories you'd rather die than watch, as opposed to that you'd... <laughs> You you watch you have to watch before you die. Yeah, these are the ones. Just push push them out. Yeah, dying is not the worst thing <laughs> in, in this process. Um, and yeah, I think that um, I think the lists were similar. Maybe not. There's a, there's just so much Doctor Who. There's a lot Plus, of Doctor you have to make sure that there's something to write about too. Like City of Death is obviously one of the worst. So that's yeah. got to be on the Clearly. list. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we were both like, yeah, we need to put in some good ones for the, for the joke. So, you know, we did that as well. And, and we also wanted to make sure we had something from every doctor and stuff like that. So, you know, yeah, it, it, it comes together. You have been planning this book for a while. And one of the 50 stories to die before you watch, I think, is Orphan 55, which is one of the newest stories. What story got bumped? to make room for Orphan 55. What is the 51st story that you should die before you watch that got cut from the book in order to shoehorn in Jodie Whittaker? No, but there's more. Isn't there two Jodies? Yeah, there's two. Yeah. yeah we, we did, did uh, the Battle of... <laughs> the Battle of the Swedish location. <laughs> <laughs> the Battle yeah. of Sweden. <laughs> the Battle yeah. of Sweden. Um, and I don't remember. Because I think we might have written it so many times that we'd already done it once. We'd already <laughs> had to do that once to put the eight, uh, 12 I think, I think Time of the Doctor was in there. Is that, is that still in there? <laughs> I was oh, going to come at sure. one point. Now I can't remember. Um, oh, man. I, yeah, where, are God, God, questions here. where are my yeah. notes? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, no, yeah, I think Time of the Doctor was one that was cut. Because um, I, I really disliked that story, but actually had a really hard time articulating why. And then my... my my jokes were kind of like very, very narrow cast. It was all about like, there's a bit where they look into the sun, sunrise and then the sun sets like five minutes later and you're like, what shape is this planet? <laughs> you know, but that's not why I hate the story, but it's like, that's the only thing I can really sort of hang my hat on. Um, so it's basically, it was, I mean, it's basically whichever jokes were the weakest, that's the stories that we cut from that section. This is about comedy, right? It's, you have to be so sharp on it. Uh, Chris Belcher, um, you know, who was a script editor for, um, like seven, like I was talking about that, you know, wrote for Doctor Who, wrote Face of Evil and Robots of Death and so on. Um, and he was talking about like, you know, when, when you've trained in comedy, like your instincts have to be so sharp because every word really counts. 
And so he was talking about being a comedy writer and, and complaining about actors who were like, you know, going off script because he's like, no, no, these, these words are chosen precisely. Um, and I, I had that in my head a lot, actually. I was like, yeah, you know, like in, in other works, it's like, oh, whatever, people change it all the time and so on. But, but through the editing process particularly, it's like, like sometimes like, you know, the, edit, the editors at various stages didn't always get the jokes we were saying. They're like, oh, you know, this is this. I'm like, no, 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 you change that word back. Like, and that word is really crucial. <laughs> the joke falls apart without it and stuff. And so it's, it's a, bit more, a bit more precarious, I guess. Which makes you wonder how yeah. funny Nightmare of Eden would have been before Tom Baker started trampling all over the script in studio. <laughs> a lost classic. I think, I think the real answer to that question is we could probably come up with an, another 50 if you need them. Easily, Just, uh, yeah. you know. I think the 60th anniversary is coming up, right? <laughs> Yeah, I suppose yeah. we better. We'll have to. The second edition. We'll come yeah. up with 50 more. Look at the size of that thing now. Or look at the size of that other thing. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that I've yeah. known each of you for a pretty long time, and during the part of the book where you signpost uh, who's writing what, such as in the, the Doctor's R and N chapter, I thought I detected some very Stacy-style humor, and I said, aha, I bet you this is going to be a Stacy chapter, and it wind up being a Bill chapter. So you guys do a pretty good job of speaking in each other's voices and keeping a pretty consistent tone. Well, I, I, I'm glad because uh, I, when I read it, I, I don't, I don't know. I know the parts I wrote, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> and in fact, uh, the aforementioned Joy Piedmont informed me that you can tell who wrote what, and I was like, "Oh, really? Okay." And I, all I could think was. I wonder if she's right. You know what I mean? <laughs> like maybe, maybe she's completely got it backwards. And now she's looking at me like, like, you know, I always knew you were this way. And I was like, no, it's not, it's not me. That's Stacy. Yeah. I didn't say that. <laughs> so now I'm to blame, you know. But, of course, then I can sleep at night knowing that Stacy is held, held to play, held to account for all the bullshit I wrote. Once you bring up Joy Piedmont, I have to give the obligatory shout-out. In an island of four million people, the island of Manhattan, Joy and I work directly across the street from one another. But thanks to the pandemic, I haven't been to work in 14 months, so I have not seen her in at least that long. So we miss you, Joy. Uh, did you guys did you guys see each other? Did you Yeah, did you like go to lunch every once in a while or We knew each other for about three years before we realized that we were literally work neighbors. We both started talking about working in the most obscure neighborhood in Manhattan that nobody's heard of. And it turns out that we both went for lunch at the same deli multiple times a week and had never managed to bump into each other. <laughs> wow. And then the pandemic happened and now we don't see each other at all, accidentally or otherwise. So that's another thing to blame coronavirus on. Wow, that's amazing. Or, or credit coronavirus, depending on how you feel about well, Joy. Uh, yeah. Or how Joy feels about me. She's probably uh, happier with coronavirus <laughs> sheltering at home. I didn't want to say that, but you, you yeah. got the point. Yeah. Oh, thank goodness. No Jason for 13 or 14 months. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have the exact opposite conversation on Reality Bomb. Ah. <laughs> 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 uh, so uh, the emotional heart of the book for me is chapters three and six because chapter three is your episode guide, the 50 stories to uh, die before you watch, or in the case of Orphan 55, the stories to kill yourself before you watch. And then chapter six, which is the doctors aren't in, and both chapters coincidentally have uncanny resemblances to Stacy's previous work with Graham Burke, only here with a lot more jokes. Um... When I approached you guys to please, for the love of God, appear on my podcast, 
I asked you for uh, readings, and I think each of you are going to have a selection from uh, one of those chapters. Uh, Bill, I'm going to start off with you because this is your first appearance. What do you want to read from today? And if worse comes to worse, I'm going to have to read from the Glenn McCoy novelization of Time Lash, so you better have a good choice. That novelization is better than the episode. Well, that's a really, really damning with faint praise. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, uh, just given the history of my appearances on podcasts generally and the way things are going tonight, worse is going to come to worse. So have it, have it ready. Um, so I was just going to read my half of the, <laughs> of the uh, City of Death review. Unless you, Stacy, do you want to read yours as an introduction to that? Sure. Or should I just read mine? Sure, let's, let's do that. Let me right. quickly my find My copy <laughs> of the book has Stacy comes first on page 42, strangely enough, for people of, of uh, the nerdy inclination that we seem to have on this. Okay, let's do a uh, Holmesian double act. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, okay, so this is definitely not crap. It is, in fact, one of the best things ever. And the perfect story to show to a newbie, not least because it's written by Douglas Adams, even if the DVD has to add a sticker saying so because the bastard didn't put his name on it, leaving only the pirate part of this proof that six-foot-old digital watch-wearing ape descendant actually wrote for Doctor Who, but that doesn't really work because you have to show a new fan the reboss operation first and they'll befriend you as soon as they see the shriven there. Show City of Death to any non-fan and they'll be thoroughly hooked. That's assuming they can get past the Jaggeroff mask being smaller than the head, the wimpy fake punching that Duggan does, and Kerensky's dancing. The more time passes, the less likely that is. Although modern-slash-friendly fans may note that it's remarkably interesting that the Doctor was the one who knew what Scaroth looked like under the mask, whereas Scaroth's wife didn't. Though usually the mask action goes the other way, in my experience. Wait, was that out loud? But still, the experiment will be a massive success, and they'll expect the classic Doctor Who was like this every week. Sadly, as it wasn't, that means you're out of luck for picking a second story because everything else will now look like crap or be racist as a result. So you suck, City of Death, and thanks for ruining it for everyone. Definitely crap. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, and then my review. Assuming that a newbie has the patience to suffer through the opening scene with the spaghetti head guy in the little toy spaceship warped by some cheap video effect from the 70s without checking his Twitter, Twitter feed on his phone, then yes, this is a great introduction to Doctor Who. But this story is a difficult watch for even us hardcore fans. This is Tom Baker and Lala Ward we're talking about, you know. A fairly important combination. Not like just any Doctor and Companion, like... Colin and Bonnie, or Sylvester and Bonnie. And we all know the story. Tom and Lala get married, and 18 months later, the marriage is over. Because Tom would rather spend an evening down at pub in Soho, smoking fags and drinking whiskey with journalists than with his spectacular new bride. And he's actually demonstrably wrong about this. I have conclusive proof on video. It's called City of Death, and it documents how Tom should have spent his time with Lala in Paris, riding trains, visiting art museums and Eiffel Towers, foiling art heists at the Louvre, and getting into adventures. And this is why we'll never get the two of them in a studio to do a commentary together, especially not for this story, because they would fall in love immediately and get remarried and adopt me, and we would all live happily ever after in Paris. <laughs> That's wonderful. And for the benefit of our viewers at home who aren't looking at Bill the way that I am, Bill, I've got two comments about your microphone. Number one, look at the size of that thing. And secondly, is that microphone based on IG-88 from The Empire Strikes Back? Oh, wow. It is now. Yeah, now that's awesome. 
No, it's it's not at all like IG-88 for people who can't see it. It looks more like IG-11 from the Mandalorian series. I didn't know that the Disney Plus was licensing Mandalorian um, microphones. Plush toys for a Baby Yoda, yes. I didn't know they were in the microphone market. And uh, before I jump into Stacy's reading proper, I am going to do a reading myself because I'm delighted to say that I appear in this book not once, but twice on page 33. This is from Stacy's review of The Dominators, which uh, clearly is one of the stories you should uh, erase yourself from existence before you watch. Episode 10 of The War Game Style. And Stacy, my apologies, I am not doing this in my Australian accent because I respect you too much. Oh, come on. <laughs> Here's how bad this story is. Okay, uh, sorry. Right, <laughs> Here's how bad this story is. The single best thing about it, far and away by any metric you care to use, is the faux review of it by my co-author in the original Outside In, which was so funny that one of the other contributors reported that after reading it, his wife banned him from reading in bed. So it was either funny or very, very sexy. Indeed, that piece was so good that, for a while, I had to write or edit 20 books before I could get a look in for the comedy book I've been wanting to write for decades. That review was Bill's entire audition piece to get this gig. So either that review was incredibly good or The Dominators was unbelievably bad. You be the judge. Uh, I'm going to have to give my side of the story on that one. That book came out in 2011 or 2012 when my kid was a year or two old. Yeah, when, you, when you have wow. an infant or toddler at home, there is no time to read unless you are reading Goodnight Moon, uh, The Runaway Bunny, the Double Those Wheels, or any other child's book you care to mention. The only time I had to read was in those five minutes at night in between getting in bed and passing out from uh, exhaustion. So I would read Outside In one review at a time. It took me about six months to finish. And when I got to Bill's review, and this is before I had met Bill, when I got to Bill's review of The Dominators, I just could not stop laughing. But I was trying to be the gentleman husband and laugh quietly so as not to wake up my wife. And when I laugh quietly, I have this habit of shaking, so the bed would uh, rattle in unusual ways. And the act of reading this review and trying not to laugh out loud would wake my wife up, which is the last thing she needed after a day of running around after an obstreperous, precocious 18-month-old. So, Bill, thanks for wrecking my ability to read in bed. I, I really appreciate it, buddy. And thanks for ruining Jason's marriage. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, and, uh, you, I mean, I assume you guys probably aren't married. Uh, you guys probably split up within three months of, uh, of, of the second edition of Outside In. No, I don't I am quite capable of screwing up the marriage on my own. I do not need help. <laughs> uh, Stacy, um, now that I've done the, worst, the world's worst Australian accent, please give us a better one with your own reading, please. That sounds good. Okay, so my, mine's a little bit lengthy, but uh, I'm going to read from uh, some of the background for uh, the original original creation of Doctor Who that we wrote about. Um, so I think this is a story that is fairly well known in its truthfulness. So I'm going to talk about Sidney Newman and friends. Uh, Sidney Newman, the BBC's head of drama and the man who created Doctor Who, was the Russell T Davies of his day. Larger than life, smoked like a chimney, and loved kitchen sink dramas. Okay, so Newman didn't actually put gay sex on ITV in 1962, but you get the sense he would have liked to. Being a much more forward-thinking visionary than anyone else around him, Newman was committed to diversity long before anyone at the BBC even understood what that was. So he hired a feisty young woman to run the show, 
giving her with a gay Anglo-Indian director and topped it off with a lead actor who was, shall we say, not really into any of those things. <laughs> it was either diversity or Newman was so bored with the stuffy BBC that he just wanted to see the sparks fly. Newman's plan for the series was clear. There should be an older man, a young girl, and a science teacher, and they absolutely positively had to be shrunk to one inch in height. So he commissioned C.E. Bunny Weber to write a treatment that, hang on, what? Why was he called Bunny? Yes, we realize that nicknames given in boarding school tended to stick for life, but this is a man who had a serious hand in creating a TV show that was so successful that it's still running today, so we'd really like to know what that was all about. Did he once eat grass for lunch, thus transmuting a mildly amusing anecdote into a lifelong nickname? Were the other boys making fun of his elongated ears? Was the guy's sexual prowess so impressive that he would hop from hole to hole? We need to be told. Verity Lambert, as Doctor Who's first producer, was determined to use the show as a launching pad for a career as one of the most iconic women in British history, which was an unusual route to success, we admit. Nevertheless, she put together the first episode, which Newman decreed was so awful it had to be remade. She agreed to that, but decided showing her boss the remaining three episodes in the story might be best avoided. Then JFK went, JFK went and got himself conspiracy to death, so nobody paid much attention to the debut of this new science fiction story. Fortunately, having made the episode twice, Newman decided to screen the final result twice. So it got shown again the next week, where it continued not to be a hit, thus removing one of the best excuses for failure to launch, since that time Bunny Weber swore that this had never happened to him before. Stuck for scripts, the production crew turned to Terry Nation, who probably told them precisely where they could shove their science fiction TV program that was clearly never going to make him any money. Nation's charming and pleasant demeanor just happened to get him fired from his other job shortly afterwards, so he slunk back to the Doctor Who production cupboard and dashed off seven scripts in seven days, hoping that would shut their lying mouths once and for all. Lambert had the first episode of Nation's story made, and then probably had to have it made again. It's a wonder she didn't quit on the spot. Once again, she made the mistake of showing Newman an episode of the iconic TV show he created, and once again he hated it, telling her Doctor Who could not possibly succeed with monsters, and especially not Daleks, because that's the kind of visionary Newman was. Happily, Lyndon B. Johnson was not murdered that week, so the first episode of the second story aired to reasonably impressive ratings, concluding with a cliffhanger where a sink plunger menaces Barbara. This was obviously the best thing that people in the 60s had ever seen, as they were clearly starved for entertainment, being only able to access things like the Beatles, Elvis, Bob Dylan, Lawrence of Arabia, From Russia with Love, The Profumo Affair, and The Vietnam War. And thus Doctor Who arrived for good, born in the fire of bug-eyed monsters, screaming women, and cheap crops made out of household items. The future had arrived. <laughs> and I think there's not one part of that that isn't true, which is the genius of it. <laughs> well, this is the thing. Doctor Who is amazing. And, you know, so is everybody involved in it. And it's, there's, there's always fun. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think the, the times have gone on so much. I mean, you know, the idea of, like, the second Doctor you know, was going to play his role in blackface. And so, therefore, you know, it's like, oh, my God, that would be horrific today. We could never watch that era. But we can't anyway, so what's the difference? You know, it's kind of like the, the jokes are just waiting to be made. It's 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 all fun. When Graham was doing his research on Sidney Newman for his Sidney Newman book, did he unearth paperwork on why C. E. Weber was called Bunny? Yeah, yes, yes, he did actually. And so he had me totally shot me down. I was like, doesn't matter, I'm keeping it as it is. <laughs> I think actually I think it was it was he liked to eat salad. That was the thing. He ate salad for lunch. That was the, the nickname. So the mystery has been solved in the interim. Now, Stacy, as one of the world's foremost vegans, does that mean your nickname is also Bunny? That's right. We won't speculate as to why. And I'm, here with, I'm here with <laughs> Stacy Bunny Smith question mark and Bill Evenson. We're talking about look at the size of that thing. Uh, guys, there are a lot of deep, 
deep cuts in your book. Uh, when discussing the Colin Baker era and trial of a Time Lord, uh, uh, you write, Arg, my liver, which is a not so <laughs> a not so subtle nod to the way in which Robert Holmes left us. The, did you ever wonder about like the intersection between comedy and uh, I don't know, good taste? Yes, yes, we wondered that many times. <laughs> didn't stop us doing. I mean, that's not true. It did stop us many times. Uh, there's oh, a yeah. few times where we kept things in, and that is one of them. Actually, I had a bit of like, oh my god, I can't believe. I kind of can't believe no one stopped me on that one. I I thought the liver joke was was like so funny that it was there to make Bill laugh, and then some editor would make me take it out, and they never did. I was like, oh, wait, I'm leaving that in. And I think there was the other one about the Graham Williams um, hunting oh, accident. Was, yeah, <laughs> I can't remember the joke, but yeah, yeah. yeah, I think we had multiple editors tell us that that one had to go. Yeah, so. I, I kept it in at the end. So <laughs> editors made us take out, and we, we got them back in again. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. I mean, I feel like you can sometimes find, find a few key battles. And I think, I mean, definitely there is, a, there is an interface between, like, yes, are you being, you know, like too distasteful and so on. But I think also it depends on the amount of comedy. If the thing is funny enough, then great, right? And if, and the problem is I think a lot of people are like, oh, you can't make jokes about stuff. I was like, your jokes actually aren't funny. Like, you know, and, and you know, I'm a vegan as, as was mentioned. Um, and what I find is like, I haven't heard an original vegan joke in many decades, right? Because no one makes very funny vegan jokes except for other vegans, right? But I was out with um, actually my, my other co-author, Anthony Wilson, um, and his father-in-law was hilarious and he, he made original vegan jokes all the time and Anthony got very embarrassed oh my god you're, my father-in-law is like making these vegan jokes I'm like it's hilarious so you up the comedy enough and it's fine you can get away with stuff um, and so I think I think the problem with most people is they're just actually not that funny I only know one vegan joke and it's not funny at all so I'm curious what a funny vegan joke sounds like <laughs> I mean, in, in this particular case, he, he'd ordered some gigantic meat thing and it was sitting next to me. And I was sort of, you know, trying to be politely kind of like, oh, okay, I'm just going to eat my salad over here. And he's like waving his hands to waft the fumes towards me. And I got the giggles. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is funny. And he was like, Jeff, Jeff, stop that. And I'm like, no, no, it's actually fine. This is hilarious. I have not laughed at somebody's like, you know, like, oh, do you eat meat kind of like joke. And like, this is this is really original and hilarious. So I was I was good to go. Uh. I think the subtitle of my autobiography is going to read, Please Do Not Wave Meat at Stacy." <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> Please stop waving meat at Please stop waving the meat at me, yes. Please do not throw steaks at me. The making of Robots of Death. <laughs> Uh, so the arg my liver line, Bill, I think that was yours. Um, what kind of place do you have to be at in life for that joke to come into your head? Oh, man, that's definitely not mine because I, I don't even get it. I got to be honest with you. I'm sorry. I, didn't, I don't even know what that's a reference to. I'm terrible. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was totally, no, it was totally, it's really funny because I'm, I'm such a pleasant and lovely person and Bill is sometimes a bit more abrasive, but man, my humor was so much more funny. It was really funny. I, people were like, oh, that's really cruel. It must have been Bill. I was like, nah, that was mine. <laughs> You can see how yeah, in that in that there. lobby, that's probably true. In the lobby, you'll you're probably going to find me saying the the thing that makes people disperse. That's that's yeah. It's my yeah. job to end lobby con. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, for some reason you start typing it out, and I I would I hit backspace a little bit more than. Mm -hmm. than 
States. Well, the, okay, so so the, the liver joke is because I was I was writing about the ultimate foe, right? And the ultimate foe is you know the first episode is written by Robert Holmes, and then the second episode is written by Pippa Jane Baker. And so you know I was like, well, I'm going to write the episode as though it's written in two voices. So I'm writing this Holmesian kind of like masterpiece. And then I switch over to like, you know, Pip and Jane Baker with their like, you know, called like, you know, like thesaurus like writing and stuff. And I do it mid mid time. And actually I was sitting there thinking like, ah, this, this joke isn't working without some transition. I need to kind of like indicate that, that one author has left and the other is, has arrived. And I was like, how am I going to do this? I was like, oh, yeah, Holmes has to die in the middle of this review. I was like, that's the only way to do it. And, so I was like, and he died of a liver complaint. He died, he died of hepatitis C, I think. And so I was like, oh, well, that's it. And then I wrote that. And I was like, oh, my God, what have I done? I was like, well, that's definitely staying in. I mean, the manner of death for Robert Holmes, this is a guy who made the doctor a vegetarian. He wrote the two doctors as a very pointed defense of and celebration of being vegetarian. He was not a vegetarian himself, and I believe the cause of death was a tainted sandwich he ate at a restaurant, whereas if he had stuck to a clean vegetarian diet, that might not have happened, is my understanding. Yes, yes, exactly. See, so, you know, <laughs> take that, Robert Holmes, you non-vegan. That's a, that's a hell of a tainted uh, sandwich. I mean, was Eric Sayward working in the in the <laughs> kitchen, or what the hell happened there? <laughs> Actually, Sayward was a fan. That probably yeah, no, yeah, yes, yes. Cut that out and put in. I don't know. <laughs> there are many legitimate <laughs> Eric Sayward jokes, and that is certainly one of them. So, as we talk about the intersection of comedy and good taste, I want to ask you guys a more uh, broad and thematic question. If there's anything I've learned from my about 30 years in fandom, and this goes back to the Rec Arts Doctor Who days, is that most Doctor Who fans, myself included, are notoriously unfunny. What is the role of comedy in Doctor Who, which is a show that tends to uh, attract a very uh, serious and uh, stuffy, shall we say, audience? You know... I, I'm not sure if I want to answer your question or just answer a completely different question. But I think you're right about the, the fandom being overly serious, and I think that's what this book uh, plays off of more than anything else. Um, we take ourselves way too seriously, and it's, it's, it's easy once you've left the convention to, to stand back and look at it and, and see how absurd the whole thing is. And uh, what was your question? <laughs> Where's the place for comedy in a in a serious? What was it? So, so actually, I, Jason, I have a great answer which which will resonate with you, I think, because uh, so if you remember back in the nineties, you know when we were embryos, uh, I, I was keeper of the quote file, and the quote file on records Doctor Who was basically like you know anyone who said funny things. Those, those jokes were collected at the end of the month and put into a file and published. And the, and the you know, I mean, I remember coming along and it, before I did it, like, I was like, oh, my God, the quote file is the most exciting thing. And, you know, and you would hope that you, you would say something funny to get into the quote file. And you'd be so excited if you saw your name in there and so on. And I took it over for many years and, and you know, just curated that and so on. And, and so for me, actually, Doctor Who fans are really funny. Like, I mean, yeah, okay, not all of them and not all the time. But, like, to me, Doctor Who and its fandom, they're, they're both very very related to humor and I think probably because I mean although I started watching with John Perry like you know the, the key doctor for me for the longest time was, was Tom Baker was like he's hilarious right and like you know humor is embedded in the DNA of the show really I mean William Hartnell is, is you know he's playing comedy but straight 
Right? So he's a character you kind of are meant to laugh at. Troutman is, is hilarious. Clearly it was a comedy actor that they hired to do comedy and he decided not to, but like, you know, like that, that was built in there anyway. Then you've got Tom Baker and, and it's, you know, it's not until the eighties that something's kind of comedy doesn't really happen anymore because they sort of went, Oh, well, Tom Baker is making it too funny. So we've got to stop that. Right? And so I think now Doctor Who has become known as like, well, it's not that funny a show in the scheme of things, but it used to be because comedy, you know, Tom Baker comedy half hour every Saturday night. And, and so to me, that's a natural, they're natural bedfellows, Doctor Who and comedy. In fact, Stacey, I think you've mentioned in other places that Doctor Who helped you in terms of being bullied because it gave you a sort of personality profile? It, it absolutely did, because I was a math nerd in Australia. This In the 80s, this was not cool, right? And so, you know, and, and what, I, what I learned from Doctor Who was like, you know what, if you, you know, can talk that quick enough and if you can make, make people laugh and if you can kind of like, you know, like basically like kind of, diffuse the situation i think through either you know ridiculous stuff or humor or whatever you can get out of stuff and and i remember one point like i was surrounded by the bullies they, they came for me and it was like the alley behind the school it was, it was after school events i was in the night and it was just like oh my god there's six of them and there's me and i talked my way out of it and i just kind of babbled and so on and major and they're laughing and so on and one by one they, they kind of like they turned over to my side and eventually the ringleader who had it in for me he was like wait what i've lost control of my gang like what's going on and i was like i was just a you know like <laughs> just fast talking to try and save my life basically and it, and it worked but that was totally the doctor who model it's like yeah okay just start talking at the baddies and eventually like you know that'll see you through and and i love that i love i love you know i mean doctor who really it, it punctures the seriousness of a lot of things and i think i think the doctor fundamentally is a character who walks up to like serious structures and babbles nonsense at them and that's that's fundamentally humor right it's not always done for laughs but it's fundamentally one of the core aspects of that See, I've had the exact opposite experience in life. My mother uh, was and is a huge Marx Brothers fan, so I was raised with this constant stream of Marx Brothers jokes. And what the Marx Brothers do is, uh, Groucho especially is the ultimate uh, foil. No matter what you say, he has a funny response ready to go. Everything that is said in life has an immediate Groucho Marx follow-up. I was raised to believe this was the normal mode of existence, and no matter what you said, I had to have a funny Groucho-style response. And then, I was 11 years old when I discovered uh, Doctor Who with the out-and-out hilarious comedy that is Time Flight. But once my local PBS station cycled around past Caves of Androzani, it begins the following week with Robot Part 1, and I was hooked on Tom Baker within just mere days. And especially if you look at Seeds of Doom, you have part two, they're in Antarctica, Scorby, who's a really tough bad guy, is holding a gun on Tom Baker, and Baker goes the full Groucho marks on Scorby, and no matter what Scorby says, the doctor has a comical response, and pretty soon he and Sarah Jane are uh, singing The House That Jack Built. And as a young Groucho Marx fan, I immediately internalized that I was going to be Tom Baker's doctor, and this is the greatest way growing up in suburban New York in the mid-1980s to lose friends and disinfluence people. So my downward mobility had a lot to do with my penchant for imitating Groucho Marx and then Tom Baker at a too young age. Yeah, I, I, like, I love your example because I, was, I, have had a, I have a similar thought about Tom Baker, and my first thought was Robots of Death. He's hilarious when they first pick him up in, the, in whatever that minoring vehicle is called. And... 
and in some way it helps to diffuse the situation before you know it they're all on the same side but i love your scorpio example because it doesn't work at all he hates him from beginning almost to the very end i think he, he might they might team up with just a few seconds left to go in episode <laughs> six <laughs> I mean, the thing about Tom Baker is, like, like, Tom Baker is incredibly rude, right? I mean, like, Robert's a death, right? He's like, you know, you're a classic example of the inverse ratio between the size of the mouth and the size of the brain. That's hilarious, unless you're standing in front of the bully saying it to him, which I know from personal experience does not work. (laughs) (laughs) It's really not going to end well, I can guarantee you. Well, Um, well, and that's why I love the Scorby example. It doesn't really work, but Mm -hmm. it's still, why not make the best of the situation while you're in it? (laughs) There's no reason not to mock Scorby. I know that when Scorby is leading the doctor to the compost room to have him grind it to death, he actually says, the quotes are over, doctor, which um, I used that as my email signature when I was leaving undergraduate to move to law school, and my then-girlfriend thought it was a personal insult because I was leaving her behind. So I guess that's <laughs> twice that uh, the Doctor Who Scorby thing has gotten me into very serious trouble. <laughs> You've based your life on Seeds of Doom. <laughs> or some might say wasted my life on Seeds of Doom. <laughs> yeah. One of the other things I love about Look at the Size of That Thing is that you guys do a remarkable job referencing iconic bits of bad Doctor Who dialogue and repurposing them as prose. So page 123, which is the chapter the Doctors are ah, in, I remember it well. You are referencing the transition from season 26 on TV, which had a viewing audience of about 4 million, to the New Adventures, which had a viewing audience of about uh, 20,000, perhaps. And I'm pretty sure this is Bill. You can correct me if I'm wrong. You say, fans had no choice but to leave the show, but the man I wanted. That, of course, is a very specific reference to a very specific moment in Doctor Who history, and... uh, the older we get, fans who know that quote are fortunately getting old and dying off, and hopefully the world will be free of the tyranny of that quote before too long, but did you ever worry about a reference that was too obscure for even diehard fans to get? Or, uh, other question, does the genius of the book lie in the fact that you need to really, really love the show on the deepest cut level in order to enjoy a book that makes fun of it? I think it's, it's, it's closer to option B, I think, first of all, I think that one actually might be me because it's one of those few Sylvester McCoy references that are in my brain because I really love Time and the Ronnie. Wait, wait, what? Legitimately love it. Say that again, but slower. Legitimately love it. I mean, watching it is fun, and and I enjoy doing it, so that means it's good. uh, That's all I can give you. Um, But... um, but yeah, obviously, the more obscure, the better, because if you're able to s- sneak something in there um, and have it make sense, and someone doesn't get it, they're not gonna they're not gonna get hurt by that. I think that's it. Does, as long as it doesn't hurt the the flow, it doesn't uh, hurt the comedy. Then cram them in wherever you can. Oh, is this because because I mean, Graham and I writing our our guides like because we're writing these for like, you know, much more major publishers than other things I work on, they were very much like, these have to work for the naive audience who doesn't know Doctor Who. And so Graham and I basically figured out how to write on two levels. Like we write for both the newbie who really knows nothing about Doctor Who and also to keep the hardcore like fan interested. Um, and so we kind of have this like layering that's going on. And yet, like Bill said, you don't want to get in the way of the newbie, but if you can put something in so the hardcore person goes, oh my God, like I recognize that thing that you just slipped in there beautifully. Like that's, that's uh, for me, the kind of favorite writing is writing on these 
these two tracks simultaneously. So I actually think the book does work for both audiences. And the reason I have some faith in that is because we tested it out on, on a lot of people. Um, and we had a lot of beta readers who read it. Some, you know, some were new series only fans and, you know, they, they pointed up things that didn't work for them. You know, we were making classic series references that didn't work or something. So we cut those ones or whatever, but there's other ones where they just didn't. And so it's like, okay, well that obviously didn't stick out. Um, and then, you know, even a few people who like didn't really know Doctor Who well, like they read, you know, read, they were like, well, I want to read some comedy. Let me read this. And they're like, oh, actually, that's funny. I was like, okay, cool. You don't know Doctor Who, but you're still finding it funny. So, you know, testing it with people is good. I'm also a big believer in the more specific you make something, the more it actually appeals to a general audience as, as, as much as that seems like it wouldn't be that, the way. But because like when I was a kid, I watched Monty Python's Flying Circus when I was like five years old. And I loved everything about it. And I have no idea who these, I still to this day don't know who these politicians are that are being mentioned frequently in these sketches. I don't, I don't think it hurts anything. It, in fact, what I, it adds a, a flavor. Like you can probably, like when, uh, in a typical Tom Baker episode, when he mentions that he met somebody, when he talks about meeting Shakespeare, you don't need to know what he's talking about to get that flavor. Actually, actually, a good, a good doctor example is in um, New Earth when like um, Cassandra goes into Rose's body and then she's like talking to herself. And she's like, "Oh my God, I'm a chav," and like I didn't know what a chav was, and I think most people outside of the UK had no idea what a chav was, and that line is still really funny. And you're like, "Okay, I don't actually know the context, but oh my God, that is that is hilarious," because we all kind of have some equivalent that we can kind of map onto it. Um, and so that's that's an excellent example, I think, of like if you don't recognize the reference. And what was funny was a lot of people. Like making the show, I think they, they mentioned this on Doctor Confidential at the time. They were like, "We we didn't think this was going to work because we'd like only people in South London will know this reference, and therefore you know it's it's wasted here." And they're like, we "We're surprised by how many people found that funny, regardless." I know. On a, on a similar note, I started watching Tom Baker. Like I said, when I'm 11 years old, so the fact that he is frequently breaking character and reciting Shakespeare over the script was completely lost on me. And then I started reading, you know, we did Macbeth in 10th grade, Hamlet in 11th grade when I'm 15, 16 years old. So by the time Revenge of the Cybermen cycled back around in 1990 and Tom Baker is standing over the Cybermen going, Dusty Death, out, out, I suddenly got it. A line that went way over my head at age 11. I thought it was the funniest thing ever. So obviously Shakespeare is not quite as obscure as uh, bad Pip and Jane Baker, Baker quotes from Time and the Ranny, but... Uh, my next question along those lines, um, did, I mean, you're working with Pencil Tip, which does a lot of Doctor Who work. Did there come a point in the editing process when your editor is, guys, this joke is too obscure even for me? Actually, the, the one thing they, 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 weren't, they weren't worrying about the jokes, they were worrying about the facts. They were more fact-checking. Um, and there was one or two facts where, where they weren't sure. There was one we had to take out because I thought it was true um, – I think it was, it was about Trial of a Time Lord, I think, and I, I think I'd I said I wrote it, and, and you defended yeah. it, but I think we took it out yeah. anyway about Eric anyway. Sayward writing yeah. the trial parts, which yeah. I still think is true. I think I he think wrote the true, trial but parts. I couldn't find any evidence for it. But yeah, yeah, if we can't prove it, so you, I think you changed yeah. it to something like yeah. they were his idea or something. Yeah, 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 that's right. So yeah, we, we, we based on what we could do, but the other one was about, um, that, which I was part of my reading before, about the, the first episode of of the Daleks being remade because they didn't know that they were like 
what do you mean that was remade? I was like, oh yeah, that was remade. I was like, I know that because I read it in some like, you know, Doctor Who magazine article back in the 80s or Peter Haining book, whatever. It's in my memory. It's lodged in that they had to remake it. But I was like, oh God, is that even true? Let me go. And it was like, yes, it was. And like, you know, but like, I was like, oh, it's interesting that that's not in general knowledge of kind of classic series fans, I suppose. Stacy dug up the Czechoslovakian fanzine from 1982. <laughs> <laughs> there's no finer source <laughs> it's in the footnotes did you read the footnotes oh, sorry, end notes uh, when Philip Morris goes to Nigeria maybe he'll find the missing reel that has the original cut of uh, Dalek episode, episode one you know Philip Morris found about half of this book we didn't really want to say but that's right <laughs> The irony is Philip Morris has blocked me on Twitter, so he will never, ever see the link to this podcast recording. That's good, I, I love it. In front of him quite a bit in the book. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, is, that, is that a badge of honor? or, or is a, Do you want me to read you what he's been posting lately? Please, if, he, if he's still going on about uh, uh, Doctor Who should never, ever be a woman and Doctor Who should never, ever be socially conscious... The very first episode of Doctor Who is the Doctor taking sides in a political dispute between two cavemen, and he says the show should never, ever get political. I think I mouthed off at him one too many times and found myself on the wrong end of his filter. I really like that example, because does he take the right side? I'm trying to think. Does he take the, the, good, the side of the good guys on that one? Or? Should Doctor Who be a woman? I don't know. There's, there's all this gender missing about, I, I don't know if I'm this. Yeah. I think he um, believes that uh, women and Doctor Who... Do not mix, um, and I believe that he believes that Doctor Who and wokeness do not mix. Which, considering how left-wing radical this show was, when you have a 27-year-old Jewish female producer and a gay Anglo-Indian director, uh, this is a very radical show. So the folks who hold up the show as a bastion of conservatism are missing the point. That's well, my belief. Know, anyway, a conservative script editor, he was. Approving and helping to write some of the most, yeah, you know, most at least from stuff, on yeah, this so. side of the pond, seem mm-hmm. to be the most liberal mm-hmm. shows they had. I mean, I think we all know that the structure of Doctor Who is entirely maintained by the Doctor's penis. I mean, that's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> it's about time somebody said it. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> well, now that you've brought the recording to a crashing halt, thank you very much. <laughs> Just, just for that, Stacy, I'm going to throw the next question at you. Uh, Stacy, the last time that you were here on the pod, I asked you which you preferred, classic series or new, and you gave me an off-the-cuff answer that I thought was genius. You said you preferred the classic series because it portrayed whole worlds by three British character actors standing in front of a black cloth. I thought this was a great explanation, and then lo and behold, I'm reading your book, and the exact same quote <laughs> appears from you, under your initials on page 123. So when I asked you that question last time, were you quoting from yourself rather than being off-the-cuff clever? Uh, yes, I was. I Actually, it's, it's, it's something I've just had in my head for a very long time. It actually was from my, my very first girlfriend because she was criticizing Doctor Who. She's like, oh my God, this show, it looks like it's three character actors standing in front of a black hood and pretend to be a, a, a whole alien world. I was like, and they do. I was like, but that's the genius of it. And so, yeah, that's been floating right in my head for a very long time. So, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I figure if Stephen Moffat can self-plagiarize, then so can I. Can you tease your next book in progress by answering this question? <laughs> Bonus points if it's about statistics, diseases, or zombies. 
Uh, like, and your question is, which do I prefer, classic or, or new? Yes. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, um, yes, my, actually, my next book is about cults. And so that's a tougher one from a comedy. I'm, I'm going from the sublime to the ridiculous because, like, I, actually, I just... I just finished the book on cults just before we, we did the final edit on this one. And I was like, I want to slip my wrist. It's about, you know, the show Millennium. Um, and it's all about like, you know, like, I mean, I'm writing about cults and serial killers and like guns in schools and, you know, religion and stuff like that. I'm sure the FBI has opened a file on me and stuff. So, yeah, it's quite different from <laughs> Doctor Who comedy nonstop. Is that your silver archive on season two of Millennium or is that yet another yes. book on Millennium? Yes. No, that's, that's exactly it. And that's that's I think it's the next but one in in the in the list for them to get to. So yeah, I, I finished that and, and set that off. So yeah, yeah, it's gonna be, it's gonna. I mean, I like to write a variety of different things. I mean, for me, the joy of writing is you get to do all kinds of stuff. And I will shamelessly plug myself. I do have an essay about one of my favorite Millennium season two episodes in your next Outside In volume. Yes, I know. I'm writing not one but two books about Millennium. Like, this is crazy talk. Actually, I mentioned that to um, two of the writers for Millennium were at uh, Gallifrey. Um, and so I went up to talk to them afterwards. I was like, oh, my God, I love this. And so I said, I'm actually doing not one but two books on Millennium. They looked at me like I had three heads. They're like, what? <laughs> Are you doing any books at all but wait, two? <laughs> I'm like, oh, anyway. So. We phoned Chris Carter for comment, and he said, Stacy is taking Millennium way too seriously. So, Bill, uh, do you have another book in progress after look at the size of that thing? Where do you where do you go from here? You know, I don't have any books in progress. Uh, I don't have any books about Millennium. Uh, well, you're in the same I'm, book about Millennium. <laughs> am I in the Millennium book? Yeah, well, it's because X, because it's X Files Part Two and Millennium and oh, like the Scottish ones. All right, there you go. That's my next. That's yeah. my next book. Is the next X Files outside in? Um, although I have a, I have some ideas about some stuff about uh, classic monsters stuff because, like I said, I'm I'm on a Frankenstein podcast. I'm a Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi fan, so I have some ideas. I don't know. Look me up. Maybe I wrote it by the time you hear this. You got that Doctor Who book on hats. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not doing a Doctor Who book on hats. Frankenstein hats, maybe. I've been listening to Karina Longworth's six-part series on Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, which she recorded about four years ago, but I am only just discovering. So I am in the middle of my classic Universal Monsters phase right now. So I will that's read awesome. whatever what's Bill the writes. What's name of that? Is that the one that's... What's it called? Uh, which one? The one you... The podcast you're talking about. You must remember this. Yes. that's. I've heard that. It's awesome. I love it. Well, if you don't want to tell us, don't tell us. <laughs> <laughs> I think I love the fact that I couldn't remember the name of it. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> you mustn't remember this. So yeah, from- I, I, I just I had to write a piece um, for a book called Musings on Monsters. Um, it was about like you know pre nineteen seventies like you know monster movies and stuff because I wanted to write about zombies. Um, so I had to watch all the Bela Lugosi zombie movies. I was like, oh my god, these are so amazing. That is that is my only connection to this topic. So, Bill, as, as, a, as a first-time as a first-time author here, so to speak, um, what was the best part of writing this book for you? Wow, what was the best part of it? Um, wow, thank you for asking that question. I should probably <laughs> have something ready, but like honestly, it was uh, I did it on Saturday. I did it on on Saturdays. For some reason, I would wake up on Saturday morning and drink coffee and turn on. I had uh, that uh, this. Uh, 
extended edition of the of a Doctor Who music. There's like an 11 CD box set that had like all these crazy sounds and music from the show. And I would just walk around my house. And uh, it was really like satisfying to actually produce something that was more than more than an outside in piece on a Saturday, if that makes any sense. Didn't you write a lot of it on your phone? I actually did. I would walk around with my phone and do it on my phone. And then when I was done, I would edit it on my laptop or whatever. But yeah, most of this, well, say most of half of this. What does that mean mathematically? 26% of this was written on my phone. Dictated or uh, dictated type with your thumbs or swiped? I think I did it like this. I think I did it, held it in one hand and did it with one with the other. What's that called? Yeah. <laughs> I think the I mean, word... It was, it was around 2016 we did most of it, so, yeah. It was oh. pre-swiping. Yeah. I, 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 I can swipe for a period of time, but not an entire book. No. Uh, I think that answers a whole series of questions our audience does not want to know about Bill's private life. <laughs> Like Saturdays. It's too much detail. And Stacy, you actually give a shout out to your mom in this book. And I have met your mom. She is amazing. We're actually Facebook friends and she likes all my child photos. Um, yes. How does your mom feel about being quoted in a book as uh, quirky as this one? Uh, well, it's funny because I actually usually have shout outs to my dad because my dad is the reason I became a Doctor Who fan which I think I actually just mentioned on the previous podcast with you um, because I was listening to that in the car on the way here. Um, and, and so, you know, my, my dad and I were not that close, but like, but I was very grateful for his, his kind of giving me that, that kind of you know, entry into Doctor Who at the beginning. Um, so it was actually really nice to quote my mom actually instead. And, and, you know, the, the quote was very much, it was very true. It was a literal quote from my mother because, you know, I was, I was never into David Tennant and I was kind of like, all right, everyone loves David Tennant. I just don't, and I don't see the appeal. And, and I remember my mom being like, Oh, he's so handsome. I was like, Mother, he's my age. <laughs> like, oh, I know, but he's so handsome. I'm like, I don't know how to feel about this. <laughs> and that begs a follow-up question. You were preparing for this podcast recording by listening to your previous recording with me? It just happened to come out of the car as I was driving over here. <laughs> I have been informed by the U.S. military that my voice is actually used as a low-grade sonic device to drive roaches and rats off of army bases, so... I apologize to you for having to listen to my voice for two full-length recordings in the same day. It, it avoids driver fatigue while I'm driving. <laughs> Wanted to punch the radio dial. Do they just use the podcast at high volume, or do they do they pay you for that? Uh, no, that, 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 is, that is because I love America so much. That is my volunteer service okay. to the country. <laughs> I give my voice free of charge as a low-grade sonic weapon. I salute you, sir. Thank you for your service. As I think the ice warriors may recruit you now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, I can kill Angus Leany's character just by speaking at him. <laughs> All right, the last time that we were on, I unveiled a brand new Trap One tradition by asking Stacy an adapted version of the Pivo questionnaire from inside the actor's studio. And what I'm going to do now is run the exact same questionnaire at Bill because this is his first time on the pod and the second time we're using the questionnaire. I actually thought long and hard about doing this Pyramids of Mars style. So the plan was to trap Sarah Jane Smith in a dusty, translucent tube. I was going to ask uh, Stacy 
If you were Bill, how would you answer those questions? And, uh, of course, the fate of poor Sarah Jane Smith would hang on uh, whether or not Stacy gave the correct responses. But yeah, the, I, I thought I was going to be Sarah Jane Smith in this analogy. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. If we happen to have a dusty uh, Lucite tube handy, if you could just stand under it for the next five minutes. <laughs> so you say it's an adapted version of those, that questionnaire. I hope it's mainly just what's your favorite curse word, because that seems to be my strength. I'm huh. ready to go. All right, so, uh, Bill, it is now your turn for the uh, Pivo questionnaire. And Trap One style, Barry Letts or Terrence Dix? Barry Letts. Classic series or new series? Oh, classic series. Now, the last time Stacy was on, she gave this amazing answer, which turned out to be a clip from her forthcoming book. What's your explanation for why classic series is better? Uh, uh, because they can depict a, a foreign planet by having three actors standing in front of a black background. That is a genius answer. Stacy. why didn't you, you do that? Thank you. <laughs> I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Who, blonde or brunette? <laughs> I guess brunette. <laughs> I think Stacy's answer was yes. Yeah, yeah, that'll work too. Uh, I'm going to give you the new series version of the classic series version that I asked uh, Stacy last time. Uh, Slovene or Oud? Oud. Yeah, that's, that's really the only way to go. Yeah, uh, the farting puts me off. <laughs> Do you mind? I'm trying to save the world. <laughs> I'll adapt the next question as well, uh, since you don't live in Ottawa. Minnesota or New York? Minnesota. Hmm. Oh, well, nobody's yeah, perfect. You, New York State, well, you did State, so it's. I had to think about it. Yeah, I guess New York State does kind of uh, improve us a little bit. Favorite companion? Sarah Jane Smith. Oh. I really have to change that question. Favorite companion apart from Sarah Jane Smith, because otherwise it's going to be the same <laughs> answer every time. Do you want it? Do you want uh, Zoe? That's a pretty good one, too. Yeah. Best Zoe costume? <laughs> the most modest one, of course. <laughs> Christopher H. Bidmead or Stephen Moffat? Uh, Christopher H. Moffat. Ooh, that's cheating, but I love it. And favorite Doctor Who quote? Um, um, shoot, I, I want to get it right. Um, it, it's... Um, Does it fly? We've moved. Does it fly? Disappears there, reappears here. You wouldn't understand. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, look at the size of that thing. <laughs> oh, shoot. Oh, I missed such an opportunity. I thought that setup was perfect. I was like, oh, my God, he's going to do it. He's, he's, he's going to do it. In. It's amazing. <laughs> I was going to say, arg, my liver. <laughs> <laughs> and... Lastly, how did you guys ma sorry, how did you manage to persuade Fraser Hines to lend his uh, name and his efforts to your book? Shh, don't tell him. <laughs> he doesn't know. <laughs> I don't know, do you know? <laughs> I think <laughs> Lars is a really uh uh he's a really fun guy. I he's like a great guy. He, he, he's a really easygoing guy and he's a really <laughs> fun and easygoing guy to hang out with. And uh, I think I think he'll like this book when somebody shows it to him one day. 
All right, so uh, Stacy, last time, of course, we talked all about your uh, library, but I want, uh, since you're new to the podcast, Bill, where else can we find you on the internet? Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm Bill Evenson on Twitter. Uh, usually I just delete all my tweets that aren't about my podcast, which is fr- called Frankenstein Minute, uh, you, as I mentioned before. Um, I am often on Reality Bomb, as has been mentioned. Um, I'm going to be making an appearance on the Trap One podcast, or so I'm told. Uh, look forward to that. If the production Come company on. approves this broadcast, which they may very well not do. <laughs> <laughs> what minute are you up to in Frankenstein by now? Uh, we just did. Uh, we just did Bride of Frankenstein minute sixty-five. So we've got about ten minutes left in that, and we still haven't seen Elsa Lanchester as. Uh, the titular, depending on how you look at it, titular bride. So join now if you want to hear about that part. How many minutes away from Abbott and Costello are you? Oh, my God. It's years. It's years. Because Son of Frankenstein's 99 minutes. Ghost of Frankenstein's probably 70 minutes. Uh, Frankenstein Meet the Wolfman is probably 75 minutes, you know, and then there's the two house films. But yes, we will do it. It's on the list. Are you, are you two like, like, you know, the other Bill and like the master in the basement watching Peter Capaldi in slow motion at the top floor? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. That's a pretty good reference. Uh, like, except although that that doesn't that take I don't know hundreds of years or no I guess it doesn't. It takes a decade. Yeah. It takes about a decade. Yeah, it's going to take us eleven years to get through Abbott and Costello, and we've been at it for about three or two and a half years. So. Well, the master can live forever, barring accidents. And Bill was already, I believe, half Cyberman at that point, so she theoretically would have had a prolonged lifespan. So you could be at this for a thousand years until you reach Frankenstein meets Abbott and Costello. What, you know, what could be better than that? You've, just, <laughs> you've described heaven to me. <laughs> and after what we've done to the poor Trap One podcast with this recording, by the time you get an invite back, Bill, you might be up to Abbott and Costello. <laughs> <laughs> Frankenstein meets Stacy and Bill. If I had a nickel for every time I've heard that. Thank you guys so much for being on the show today. The book is called Look at the Size of That Thing by Pencil Tip Publishing. Uh, I am not allowed to read my copy. But in fact, the other day during my lunch break from working at home, I was reading the book. And my wife was two rooms away and she was able to hear me reading because I was laughing so hard. That is the best compliment imaginable. So thank you for interfering with my marriage a second time with a second book, I should say. <laughs> and I am Jason at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels. I am currently tweeting my way through the classic series on Twitter. Uh, tonight I will be getting to episodes four and five of Colony in Space, which means I am in for some very, very exciting viewing indeed. And that's it for us at the Trap One Podcast. Thanks very much. Have a great night, everybody.